On March 24, 1964, a strange independent film debuted at the Phoenix Cinema. It drew a crowd of only 501 people and starred actors from the nearby Arcadia High School. The plot of the film was unique for its time. It followed around a group of scientists as they investigated lights in the sky and the disappearances of a number of people, animals, and objects from the fictional town of Freeport, Arizona. Despite its low budget, the film showed promise. The 135-minute feature included mature subplots, like marital strife between one of the scientists, Tony Karcher, and his wife Debbie. There's another subplot involving the hardcore believer of the group, Howard Richards, trying to convince the CIA that aliens don't exist. In the end, it's revealed that the aliens' ultimate plan is to transport the population of Freeport to the aliens' home world to create a zoo. Five years later, Kurt Vonnegut's protagonist in Slaughterhouse-Five, Billy Pilgrim, would spend time in an intergalactic zoo on the planet Tralfamador. If you're listening to this episode, it's more than likely that you've never seen this film. In fact, only three and a half minutes of the film have survived to date. Firelight was Steven Spielberg's first film. He made it with a measly budget of only $500, netting him a profit of exactly $1. The film's legacy lives on in another of Spielberg's main features, and one that you're probably quite familiar with. Close Encounters of the Third Kind. If you've never seen it, the film stars Richard Dreyfuss as Roy Neary, an electrical lineman who had a close encounter of the second kind while inspecting power lines at night. His life becomes consumed by the UFO sighting, costing him his family in the process. You're probably familiar with one of the film's most iconic scenes. Roy, who in childlike fashion has been obsessing over an image in his head, creates a replica of the Devil's Tower in Wyoming in his living room. Interwoven with Roy's story is that of Jillian, whose son Barry has been taken by the alien beings, and Claude Lacombe, a UFO researcher played by Francois Truffaut, who was actually based on real-life UFO researcher Jacques Vallée. Vallée wasn't the only UFO researcher to play a part in this film. In fact, the film's title is taken from Dr. J. Allen Hynek's Close Encounter classification system, who worked with Spielberg on the film and even made an appearance toward the end during the alien contact sequence. Perhaps the most iconic feature of the movie is the five-note musical sequence used to communicate with the aliens. While we may not know how aliens communicate, Music is often viewed as a universal language that anyone can understand, as it relies heavily on mathematics. For the five-note sequence featured in the film, John Williams worked closely with Spielberg. At first, Williams wanted a seven-note sequence, but Spielberg believed it would be too long. Williams was then forced to hire a mathematician to calculate the total number of sequences that could be done in a 12-note scale. When the mathematician came back with the number 134,100, Williams created 100 five-note sequences before he and Spielberg whittled them down to one. Music and the aliens are intrinsically linked. We included two phonograph records on the Voyager 1 space probe, which was launched in September of 1977. 
The records were gold-plated and contain over 115 sounds from nature, as well as a collection of spoken greetings from a number of languages and a few pieces of music from around the world, including Chuck Berry's rendition of Johnny Be Good and the Brandenburg Concerto by Bach, as performed by Munich Bach Orchestra, conducted by Carl Richter. If the Voyager 1 Golden Discs tell us anything, it's that music has more of a place in the cosmos than we think. And over the years, there have been a number of songs that have featured aliens. Artists like Creedence Clearwater Revival, Elton John, Ella Fitzgerald, and many others have sung songs about saucers and aliens coming to Earth. And some of them even claim to have had encounters themselves. But perhaps the most prominent sighting comes from a man named Johnny Sands, a country artist who had a strange encounter with a pair of, as Rob Morphy of the Kryptonaut podcast would say, enigmatic entities. My name is Rob Christofferson, and this is a special Patreon bonus minisode of the Our Strange Guys podcast. Johnny Sands had moved from Nashville to Las Vegas, Nevada, in the hopes of jump-starting his country music career. On the night of January 29, 1976, Johnny was visiting radio stations in the towns outside of Las Vegas to see how his debut single was faring. He had visited some bars as well, talking to the owners and seeing how much play his single was getting on their jukeboxes. Johnny Sands had made a career for himself working with artists like Conway Twitty, Charlie Daniels, and Merle Haggard, and had performed on the Grand Old Opry, as well as shows like NBC's Today Show. He had also worked as a stuntman on shows like The Wild Wild West and Hell's Angels 69. In 1983, he allegedly broke the Guinness Book of World Records for the fastest straitjacket escape at just 70 ninths of a second. Granted, the current record holder, Danilo Adello, did it in 2.84 seconds. So I guess we'll just have to take Johnny's word on that. At 10 p.m., Johnny left his last stop in Pahrump and headed back to Las Vegas. He had an urge to check out the old Nevada western town and found himself on Blue Diamond Road with no real reason to be there. He was 14 miles down the road, and 22 miles away from Las Vegas when he realized where he was and turned his car around. When he did, he caught sight of a bright light in the sky. It was roughly blimp-shaped, and Johnny assumed that it was probably the Goodyear blimp or another just like it. But it was only a few moments after seeing this light that his car died. The dust he had been trailing caught up with him as he pulled the car over to the side of the road. He got out and rocked it to make sure the gas tank wasn't empty, 
which it wasn't. The blimp floated near him, and he could see that it was roughly 60 feet long. A large ring cut the object in half, and in the middle, on each side, a series of porthole windows were evenly spaced. White and red lights flashed from the front and the back, and the object itself appeared rust-colored. It illuminated everything its light touched, including the ground. When Johnny lost sight of the object, it appeared to be landing on the desert floor nearby. Johnny moved to the front of the vehicle and popped the hood. He jiggled some wires and checked some of the connections before he moved to the air filter. He was in the process of taking it off when he looked back for a short second. He could see two men walking toward him in the light of his car's low beams. He grew more and more concerned and intended to move back toward the cab of the vehicle, but he found that his legs would not work. He stood there frozen to the spot, his body failing to do what his mind was asking. One of the figures stopped eight feet away, and the other stopped within five feet. The pale six-foot-tall, 150-pound being was devoid of hair of any kind on its head. Its eyes were black, with white pupils, its nose was flattened, and it had a mouth that appeared to be clenched tightly. It wore black, silverish, all-encompassing overalls with no seams visible. But the most curious feature were what he referred to as gill-like structures on the side of its head. These triangular flaps of skin would flutter when the being would speak to Johnny. They looked to be as fit as a 21-year-old, as Johnny put it. But some of their facial features gave him the impression that they were 300 to 400 years old. These beings walked as if they were light, or more accurately, as if they were floating. And as they walked, they made no noise. He had a ten-minute conversation with the man, and most of the details remain hidden out of respect for the being's request. Much like Woodrow Derenberger's first encounter with Injured Cold, this being asked Johnny why he was where he was, and why people went to the city of Las Vegas. Johnny did his best to explain to the being, and the being inquired as to the means of his communication. Up to this point, the being had been communicating telepathically, and Johnny said that he didn't understand the question. The being explained that there were many types of communication, and he demanded that Johnny answer the question. Johnny explained again that he could not. The being then turned to his companion, and they stared at each other for approximately three minutes. The being then turned around and said, Don't say anything about this meeting. We know where you are, and we'll see you again. And with that, both men turned and walked back into the desert toward the direction of their craft. Johnny looked on as the object rose up slightly, and in a flash of light disappeared. The car started almost instantly after the object disappeared, and Sands flew into Las Vegas to the police department. He told them his story, and they directed him to the Nellis Air Force Base and their Office of Special Investigations. OSI was uninterested in the report and told Sands that they didn't investigate UFOs anymore. But days later, 
the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization picked up on the story and confirmed with Las Vegas police that they had received an influx of calls from concerned citizens who had seen strange objects in the sky. A great many of them resembled the craft that Johnny Sands had seen. The strangeness of Sands' encounter would not end here. In early February, he was contacted by the David Dunn Production Company. They were allegedly developing a TV series around paranormal encounters around the greater Las Vegas area and singled Sands' story out. On the night of February 10th, he went out to dinner with the production crew. When the meal was over, they drove out to the site of the encounter. They told Sands to stay in the car, and together the producers talked amongst themselves. The discussion became heated at one point. It was hard for Sands to make out anything that they were saying, but at one point, overheard one of the men say, What will we do with him? He's already heard too much. Sands had had enough, and was set to confront the men. But when he tried to exit the car, the door was pushed closed by, quote, two fuzzy things, as he put it. In the next conscious moment, he was back in Las Vegas. He came to believe that he was drugged, and that perhaps the film crew were trying to capture an authentic reaction from him. Some have pointed to this encounter as a Men in Black type one, but the truth behind it remains elusive. Whatever the reason for this encounter, Johnny Sands is referred to it as a miracle from God. He has performed over 15,000 stunts in his life, and has performed all throughout the country as a singer. We are left to wonder what else the being said to Sands. And perhaps one day, when he is no longer with us, we will learn more. But until then, we are left to wonder what he was doing on the road on January 29th, 1976. This episode was written and recorded by me. Thank you all so much for listening. Our theme song was composed by Big Cats, with additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. And our logo and web design is by the great Desdemona. We're going to go out on a Johnny Sands song called Blue Diamond Road. But before we do, don't forget to look up, because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies. We're on Blue Diamond Road. In gray we trust. Well, it was late at night and I was speeding along in the desert Nevada and I was all alone, kind of tired and hungry and I was Vegas bound when out of the sky came a light with no sound. Well, it's a bright colored thing, sort of sheep like spheres. Said, Look here, John, time to get out of here. And wouldn't you know it, it's just my luck that my car stalled and left me stuck. Well, I got right out to see what I could do. I was shaking so bad I could hardly move. Free my headlights, I saw my coming. Something made me frozen, keep me from running. I see two creatures all a pale and white. Two strange figures in on my front headlights. Heads who shine, you see they had no hair. Ask them where they come from, they said, way up there. I gotta move, 
sound. They asked a few more questions and said, what should we do? I said, just unfreeze me and I'll be leaving you. Yeah.